Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to First Things in the Morning, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything, so we can all start our day learning something new. As you know, the podcast is divided into different series, so everyone knows what they are in for just by looking at the title. Check out the podcast description if you want to know what other series are about. Uh, but today we are diving back into the series, haha, where we just laugh together. I've come across some funny stories that I wanted to share. It will be a bit of an eclectic episode, uh, as I imagine all future episodes of Haha will be, because funny stories are often not very long, but all of these stories will have a common denominator, which today will be sports. Also, just a heads up, I'm watching my friend's bunny and he's eating some cardboard in the background. So if you hear something, that's Lucifer. He is very, very cute. <laughs> if you like football, the European kind that actually uses feet, uh, you might know that the well-known Amsterdam-based football club Ajax won the Dutch championship this week. My family is from Amsterdam, so naturally we were all very happy about it. Uh, I don't really care about football, I just pretend to so I don't get kicked out of the family. But it's not about football, it's just I don't really like sports, I don't wa like watching it anyway. I like playing it, I was a swimmer for about 10 years, then I boxed for a, for a couple of years after that. And I'm Dutch, so stereotypically, I cycle a lot. Um, but other than that, I don't really care. That being said, even if you aren't interested in the sports themselves, there's still a lot of fun to be had in learning about them. Because with sports comes a wild array of cheating, things going horribly wrong, and just people making dumb decisions. And all of those are things that I can relate to. So let's take a look at a few instances of sports gone terribly wrong. Our first story, the marathon of the Olympic Summer Games of 1905 in St. Louis in the United States. This event was an absolute trash fire, if you pardon my French. Let me set the scene. It was about 19 degrees Fahrenheit outside, which is 32 degrees Celsius, and the race took place on a dusty road. The sun beating down on this track, if you can call it that, wasn't exactly helpful to the contestants. Okay, one second. I'm gonna take your cardboard away now, yeah? Because you're making annoying sounds. So I'm just... Thank you. Furthermore, the road wasn't reserved... Oh, no, now you're eating my couch. All right, here, have your cardboard back. Just be quiet about it, yeah? Thank you. Um, the road wasn't reserved for the race. So the runners had to constantly watch out for just normal traffic, uh, ducking out of the way for railroad trains and wagons and other carts. And it wasn't just the dust that made the road bad, but it was an all-around terrible condition, with loose stones laying about and ditches everywhere. So the fact that about everything that could go wrong did go wrong wasn't very surprising. We are going to go through all this in a quick fire way, because <laughs> there's a lot. There were about 32 runners, and as a side note, 10 of those were Greek men who had never run a marathon before, which is a strange thing to happen. Uh, and out of those 32, 18 didn't even make it over the finish line, because of just pure exhaustion. Then there was William Garcia, who was the first one to bite the dust, quite literally. Um, his throat and stomach got coated in the dust he breathed in from the road, and it caused his stomach to hemorrhage. He was hospitalized after his stomach lining ripped, so Garcia was out of the race. Cuban runner Felix Carvajal, who got to America by raising money on Cuba, then he lost all that money in New Orleans on a dice game. And then he had to 
walk slash hitchhike all the way to St. Louis, which is not a great way to prepare. He showed up at the starting line in long black pants and street shoes, which another runner thought looked a bit toasty. So he did the bloke a favor by finding some scissors and cutting off the pants to the knee. Garbajal got a bit hungry during the race, so first he stole some peaches from a passing cart, and then he saw some apple trees next to the track, and he figured he would take a break and snack on them, as you do during an Olympic race. Uh, And next thing you know, he was on the ground with stomach cramps. So Carbajal was also out of the race. Then there was the special case of Len Tao, a South African runner, uh, who was making pretty good time before he was chased off the track by wild dogs. Apparently no one bothered to put up any fencing or check for wild dogs. So Tao was also out of the race pretty quickly. Fred Lors, an American who had done all his training at night because he had a day job to attend to, uh, was the original winner of the run. I say original because his title was taken away from him pretty much instantly. (laughs) He got cramps within the first couple of miles, rested for a while, then hitched a car ride to just out of sight of the finish line and ran the last mile or so. Back then, I guess they just checked who left at the start and who came in at the finish line, and not what the runners did in between uh, those points. So no one had noticed his blatant cheating. The daughter of the president, um, Alice Roosevelt, was about to give Lors his gold medal, uh, when someone finally took the time to, and I'm quoting a witness from that day here, call an indignant halt to the proceedings with the charge that Lors was an imposter, which... I imagine it was said in that accent. Uh, it's very historically accurate. <laughs> After which, Lords just smiled and claimed he was never going to accept the honor anyway. Uh, he was just doing it as a joke, he said. Which, to me, sounds like the very first recorded instance of someone going, it's just a prank, bro. Because the next year, he run another marathon, not as a joke. So even though he made it to the finish line, Lords was also out of the race. So who actually won the marathon from hell? It was Thomas Hicks, but even for him it wasn't very easy. About 10 miles in, he was already being helped by two of his assistants, who were giving him a concoction of strychnine and egg whites, washed down with some brandy. Strychnine is an alkaloid that can be used as a stimulant, but also, as we now know, as a poison. (laughs) Back then there were no doping laws for professional sports yet, so you could basically do whatever you want. Poison or not, it gave Hicks just enough energy to make it to the finish line. Although that last mile, his two assistants were each carrying one of his arms because he could barely stand upright anymore. When he crossed the finish line, he promptly passed out. (laughs) It took an hour and four medics before Hicks was well enough to even be moved, and according to him it was the worst race he had ever ran. The next year, Hicks and Lourdes met again. Uh, during the Boston Marathon, and that time Lors won from Hicks, fair and square, without any use of cars. Just think of the man who got chased a mile off track by wild dogs during an official Olympic event, before you complain about sporting events being totally corrupt and ethically questionable next time. Speaking of ethically questionable sports, let's take a look at rugby next. Specifically the scandal known as Bloodgate, at the hands of the British club The Harlequins. Bloodgate went down in 2009 and was an attempt at cheating that was both unsuccessful in execution and in outcome. I know next to nothing about rugby, but all you have to know for this story is that in rugby, if someone starts bleeding, you are allowed to exchange that player for one on the bench, even if you wouldn't be allowed any more exchanges uh, anymore under normal circumstances. 
So the Harlequins were playing a team called Leinster. It was the end of the game, Harlequins 5 points, Leinster 6. There was one more chance to either win or lose the game. And to win, they needed a good kicker to, I presume, kick something or someone to score a point. I really don't know much about rugby. But the Harlequins did have one of the best kickers in rugby at the time. A bloke named Nick Evans. The only problem being that Nick Evans had hurt himself earlier in the game and was replaced. He was fine now, but the team wasn't allowed to put him back in the field. Unless, of course, someone bled. So what they did, they being the physiotherapist, uh, Steph Brennan, and the director of the club, Dean Richards, was buy a fake blood capsule from a joke shop and give it to the player they wanted off the field, which was Tom Williams. The plan was that Williams would bite down on it, make a bloody spectacle, and be replaced by Nick Evans, who would then win uh, them the game. Good plan, but (laughs) terrible execution. The first mistake was Williams winking at the manager before biting down. If you're gonna cheat, you can't be proud of it, especially not if there are cameras everywhere, and the way you are cheating is spontaneously bleeding copiously from the mouth. It's already kind of suspicious to be just standing there one second and then bleeding in the next. If you're gonna wink beforehand, everyone is gonna know something is up. But Williams bit down, bled, and for the moment, he was taken off the field by the Fischo, who was of course in on the plan, so he pretended to be all worried and stuff. The game continued while Williams was (laughs) examined by their team's doctor, Wendy Chapman, with both the Leinster Fischo and the tournament organizers wanted to take a peek themselves at this alleged cut he had in his mouth. They were banging on the door to be led into the examination room, with Chapman and Williams inside, completely panicked. Williams knew damn well it would cost him his career if he was caught cheating. So he begged Chapman, uh, a doctor who swore an oath to never hurt anyone, to cut his lip, making it seem legit. She didn't want to at first, but when he threatened to do it himself, She figured it would be safer if she did it with her surgical knowledge, instead of letting a frantic, panicked rugby player with his life on the line do it. By the time the others came into the room, Williams did have a cut lip, as promised, but everyone stayed suspicious. An investigation was started, and it didn't take long before the truth came out. Turns out that the Harlequins had done this trick a couple of times during other games as well. But that's not where the story ends. Because in the aftermath, William got a one-year ban on playing. Now, to be fair, he was like 23, rugby was all he had ever done, and he trusted his coach, so he just did what they told him to. I don't think it's completely fair to let him take the blame for just following orders. And someone else who didn't think that was fair was Williams himself. So he decided to cheat the cheaters. See, he could either take the one-year ban and save the reputation of the club because he had acted alone, or he could come clear, tell everyone about what his coach made him do, and who else was involved in the scheme. Naturally, the club really wanted him to take the fall, so they made him an offer. If he took the ban, they would make sure he was financially taken care of during that time. But the offer was unconditional, because you can't just outright say, we will take care of you if you keep your mouth shut, because that's clearly blackmail. So Williams took the contract, this contract that couldn't be broken by anything he did. He took it, and then went right over to the ERC, the European Rugby Champion Cup, the people who organized the event. And he promptly told them everything he knew. His ban was reduced to only four months after that. And now all the others were fucked. The director, uh, Richards, got a three-year ban uh, on all rugby activities. 
after which he just decided to resign altogether from the club. The physiotherapist, Brennan, who was about to get his dream job at a different team, by the way, got a two-year ban as well, which automatically cost him his new job. Dr. Chapman got suspended, awaiting a disciplinary hearing into the cut she made into William's lip, because it's not very ethical. But luckily she only got a warning and her medical license wasn't taken away. And then the club chairman, Charles Chillings, resigned as well. And remember how I said that the game went on while the cutting scene was happening? Yeah, the Harlequins didn't even win that game. So it was all for nothing. Three people lost their jobs and the club's reputation was forever ruined. And all that to lose a game. Moral of the story, if your players are shit at rugby, don't make them cheat. Just get better players. Okay, one last story for which we are going back to running. Uh, this time it's about running ultra marathons. Sergio Motsuneng was a runner from the impoverished Bantustan village of Kwaka, who, in 1999, decided to run the Comrades Marathon. This is a 56-mile, 19-kilometer long ultramarathon in South Africa, which, in my humble opinion, is way too many kilometers to run. Don't do that. Uh, my uncle-in-law actually ran this one twice, uh, and he completed it, which is great feat, but also it just seems excessive. Why would you do that? I don't get it. Anyway, Sergio decided to run, and he came in eighth place, which is an amazing uh, accomplishment, and it won him a lot of money, because they give out quite big prizes at these events. But it turned out that Sergio had pulled one of the most classic tricks in the book, because, you see, he had a twin brother named Fika, and he too was a runner. And they both ran the marathon, but only signed up as one. The way they had pulled this switcheroo off, without anyone noticing, was with the help of porta-potties. Because the race is too long to do on one bladder, there were porta-potties spread out along the track. Sergio ducked into a porta-potty the first time when he was about 45 minutes into the race, and Fika left it. He did this a couple of times during the race. Uh, this way, the other could rest for a bit, make his way to the next meetup porta-potty, and start again fresh. At first no one noticed, and Sergio received the prize money and the gold medal that both came with a top 10 spot. He donated both the money and the medal to his father back in the village. But then people grew suspicious. Because during the marathon there are several points where constant photos are shot. Because during the Comrades Marathon not only your end time counts, but also the time you made on the individual chunks of the race. So they have these pictures so they can see when you cross certain parts. And in the pictures, when they looked up his number, something kept changing. His watch kept going to the other arm, which it's not impossible that a runner would change that during the run, but it's not very likely. Something that is impossible is growing a scar on your leg during the different chunks, which then the next time would disappear again. Because Fika had a big scar on his shin, which Sergio of course didn't have, and that's what they were ultimately busted on. They should have put on long pants. And after they were found out, the brothers sadly had to return the money and the medal. Both of the brothers said that they had only done it to help their family, who was incredibly poor. And honestly, from all the illegal things you can do to get yourself some much-needed income, this one I kinda support. <laughs> I mean, it only hurts a big organization, and 
Okay, to be fair, it also hurts the person who came in 11. But other than that, I get why they did it. They had a lawyer, who was also a comrades runner, who has been quoted to say, This is quite a tragic story. Hopefully, Sergio will not be lost to the sport, because he is a highly talented runner. If he harnessed all the energy he put into cheating, rather into running the race properly, who knows, he might have finished top 5. It's a compliment, but kind of a bittersweet compliment. The brothers were both banned from competing in these ultra marathons for the next five years. In 2011, Sergio took part in the Comrades Marathon again, and this time he came in third. And presumably he did it all on his own. Except this time, an unknown substance was found in his blood. It wasn't clear if it was drugs, but it surely wasn't blood, so he again lost his chance at the gold medal and the money. The problem with stories like these is that I don't support doping in any way, but at this point in the story I've already grown kind of fond of Sergio, so so I'm kind of protective of him. I just want him to be happy. Just give him the medal one way or the other. He worked very hard for it. You can't deny that. Alright, that was all the sports-related failures I have for you today. If you liked this episode, or the whole podcast even, Please take the time to rate and review it if your podcast platform choice allows it. Apple Podcasts and iTunes are very important. It helps other people find the show and it tells me if people are actually liking it or no one does. Shout out though, because today I reached 100 listens on the whole show, which is a lot of listens. Feel free to send any uh, episode requests to my Twitter at InTheMorningPod or to my Gmail, firstthingspod at gmail.com. Or just come say hi. That being said, I wish you a very good day. And I hope to see you back next week on First Things in the Morning podcast. <laughs>